All right, let's get into today. We are in week three in the series of Galatians. I love the book of Galatians, a really brief, stern, direct book from the book of, or from the, 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 the apostle Paul. Uh, we've walked through several realities of the gospel, what's going on. We talked about who the big players in the book of Galatians are. You know, Paul, Peter, the Judaizers, and then you got the church of Galatians. And there's this big conflict that's happening in the book of Galatians. And that conflict has to deal with what the gospel is and how one is made right in front of God. There is a group of people, those Judaizers, that are causing an issue within the community saying that, yes, it's Jesus Christ, but you also have to follow the law, and both and, to, to obtain salvation. Paul rejects that. The inspired gospel that was given to him by, by God it does not say that. It is formulated in what we said last week, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, and nothing else. And so Paul has a huge contention, contention with what they're talking about and the confusion that they are causing within the area of Galatia. And so because this series is generally about having right understanding of God and who he is and what the gospel is and what the law is, you're going to find this to be pretty theological here in the beginning. We're, we're going to try to dig in. We feel convicted in the area of trying to make sure that we have right thinking about God in some very important areas. And so last week we uprooted the gospel that Paul was teaching, trying to figure out what it is that the gospel is made of. And we talked about that equation that we just mentioned, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that that is the essence of the gospel. And so we got really theological in our understanding of it, but we also concerned ourselves with where that gospel roots itself in our life, where it rests, how it birthed out of our lives, where the gospel in our lives intersect. And what we said was, yes, we love the gospel, we like the gospel, but those are all emotional-based things. The truth is, is we got to have it. The gospel has to intersect our lives in a way that we understand that we have to to have it. It has to create a desperation in our lives because the truth says is that for the wholeness of life, for your redemption, for your salvation, you have to have grace through faith in Christ. You need it. We are desperate for it, and that's where it needs to be rooted. And the great thing about when it's rooted in, I got to have it, in desperation, the Lord just creates a reality in our lives where we want to have it. And so we move from, I got to have it, because I to I want to have it because of the way that he works in our lives. And in that desire, we sacrifice our lives, our service, our gifts to him. But when we base the gospel and our understanding on our feelings, when we drive ourselves to feeling closer to God, it creates all sorts of realities where we begin to add to the gospel and take away from the gospel in order that we might feel closer to God. And we said that, look, Emotions are cool. They're hard at times. God gave it to us, them to us. They help make a fascinating life, but he did not ground his truth in emotion. He grounded his truth in his person and in his word, and we have to take note of that. And the word says that we got to have the gospel. So we spent our time last week dealing with that. This week, we want to walk well into this area of the law. We want to kind of navigate through this term called the law. We, we have read through the book of Galatians. We, we, if you notice, we're not following verse by verse here, but there are some really important terms that we need to define. The gospel's one, the law is two. 
We need to have good conversations around them for us to fully understand how faith works and fully understand the contention between works and faith. And so we need to get deep in our understanding in these area, these areas. And so we're going to walk down the area of the law today. And the reason that we're, we're, we're walking towards that term in this book is because it's the area of contention that we see in the, the area of Galatia. And let's be honest, guys. The law gives us trouble today. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to understand what it is. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you've sat in a service, in a sermon, or in a class, you've probably heard that term, the law. But do you really know what it means? And do you really know its implications? And do you know its purpose? I think sometimes we're confused on whether or not are we supposed to obey the law? When am I supposed to obey the law? And how much of the law am I supposed to obey? And so it's really important that we have a meaningful discussion on the area of the law today, that we might have right thinking in this area for the benefit of our faith, the removal of our minds, and the proper understanding of God's glory and power. A great understanding of the area of the law increases all of those things. And so today, let's just kind of start by thoroughly kind of defining the law and its purposes. We use this term, the law. And when we use that term, we're most likely referring to the Mosaic Covenant, the laws of Moses that were given to the people and nation of Israel. It is a bilateral agreement between God and his people, the Israelites. And so let's just do a little history lesson. We kind of talked about this last week. When we're created, everything's good. It's perfect. No de- disease, no death, no sin, nothing. It's beautiful. One rule. We prove ourselves to be incompetent to follow that one rule. In the garden, we have perfection, walking with man, fully delighting in God, God fully delighting in us. We disobey havoc, chaos, brokenness comes into the world where it previously did not exist And in that, God knows that he has to find a way to bring his world back to himself. And so he begins the process of redemption. He picks the ragtag group of people named the Israelites. The word Israel simply means one who wrestles with God. And that's so true to accurately describe the Israelites. They are just going to wrestle with God for their whole lives. And so do we. So do we. We wrestle with God in understanding him. So he picks this nation. He he builds a covenant on them. And and then he is going to use them to bring the world back to himself. He makes that covenant with a guy named Abraham. He's the patriarch here. He's the founder of the nation of Israel. Abraham's an interesting story. Abraham's an idol maker. His father, well, he's an idol worshiper. His father is an idol maker, meaning this, is that they literally make statues of other gods for other people to worship them. And they worship them themselves. Abraham is a worshiper of multiple gods, of idols. And this is just, this is God. To take somebody so, what we would say, unqualified, so out of the realm of possibility, that God draws Abraham, an idol worshiper, to himself, the one true God, to redeem the world. That, that is just, that is, our, that is our God. He just takes us who think we're disqualified, and he makes us worthy through who he is. And so God takes Abraham, he brings them through a whole series of events, and there's a point in a juncture where God and Abraham are having a conversation. Abraham talks about his trust in the Father and what he has done, and God says that I am going to credit to you righteousness, 
That is right standing and justification in front of the Father through faith. He credits righteousness to Abraham and his people through faith. And I think that's important in the get-go to understand the law. That there was a covenant, a promise that was established some 430 years before the law came into existence. Before Moses was given the law that said it was righteousness through faith. I think we get confused about obedience, but the covenant was based on faith. Righteousness through faith. And so Paul begins to write about this law in the book of Galatians in chapter 3, and we'll read this together. He says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 40, 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Gave it to Abraham. Faith by, righteousness by faith. And so there is this pre-existing bilateral covenant between God and man, Abraham, the Israelite nation, that says faith, not obedience, is what credits your righteousness. Paul says the presence of the law, the coming of the law, never voided that promise. It never voided that contract that was made by faith, by trusting in God and His promises. That covenant would point forward to the one who would come to fully reveal Himself as God in His divine grace and mercy in Christ. So the covenant that was made with Abraham is a, is a pointing forward to what Christ is going to accomplish for us on the cross. Grace by faith in Christ. So he establishes his covenant with his people. God says, just trust me. Believe in me. Have faith in me. I'm going to do what I've done already in your life. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to be faithful, devoted to you. Just not in your time. Just not how you would like it. But I'm going to be devoted to you. Maybe not the way that you like it. Just have faith in that. And so he goes about creating then a holy nation out of Israel after the covenant he makes with Abraham. The word holy is an interesting word. Sometimes we look at this word holy and we think that it kind of means like um, moral superiority. Like you, you would look at somebody and say, hey, you know, that guy seems like a holy guy. He prays a lot, goes to church. He's in a lot of studies. He seems to be right with God. But that's not how holy is defined. Holy simply means to be set apart. Certainly that person probably is holy. He's probably set apart. God is trying to set us apart from the broken world. That is what holiness is, to be like Christ and not like the world. And so he is going about to set apart the nation of Israel as his people from a broken world. He's going to set them apart, and to do that, he's going to give them the law. He's going to give them the law 
to separate them, to set them apart. And so the epicenter of that law is the Ten Commandments. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the Mosaic Law. It comes out of the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. The Mosaic Law, in the epicenter of that law is the Ten Commandments. God rescues his people out of Egypt. So after Abraham, things don't go great. There's a famine. People are starving in the Israelite nation. There's a guy named Joseph. That's where Joseph fits in, a technical green coat guy. He's down in Egypt, and he's preserved lots of food. And so his brothers come down, and then the entire Egyptian or Israelite nation comes into Egypt so they can be fed and live. And then what happens? The Egyptians enslave the Israelites, and they put them in bondage. I think, you know, maybe you say, well, why would God, if those are his chosen people, why would he let them go into bondage and slavery? Because he needed to break them. To reveal his power in his glory, that they would depend on him. Much like in the way that sometimes he creates desperation in our life. He needs to show his power and his glory and his holiness for them to trust him. And so he brings them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai. God communicates with them these ten laws that are going to be basics, the basis of the, the, the Mosaic Law. And this is essentially the Ten Commandments. Uh, I, I wrote them one, two, three, four, ten. They, they look different. They have verse numbers. These aren't verse numbers. These are just the commandments. Exodus 20 is the conversation between God and Moses. And God spoke all these words saying this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now I want to make a note there. When God begins to talk to Moses... He doesn't go into a, the list of rules, but he reminds his people who he is to say, hey, do you remember what I've done for you? Trust me. Have faith in me. I'm going to do it for you again. This is, this is, this is law given by faith. It, that's the biggest part of this. By faith, trust what I'm going to do to you. And to do that, follow these things. Second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the father on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do anything, any work, you or your son or your daughters or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourners who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heavens, the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blesses the Sabbath day and made it holy. Five, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. Kids, Read that one. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. 
Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Those are the Ten Commandments that God gives to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. Those are the epicenter of the law. But there are more than 600 other commandments that the Jewish nation would have followed. We find those 600 commands in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. 613 to be precise. They're called the mitzvot. And the Israelite nation would have been accountable to obey all of those rules. And they can be broken up in several different ways. You have 248 positive commands that say, hey, do this. And then you have 356 every day of the, of the, of the year rules that say, hey, silly, don't do that. And then you can divide them up in three different categories. You've got the moral law that talks about the holiness of God and who God is. You've got the civil law that talks about how we interact with people. And you've got the ceremonial law that deals with purity and hand washing and sacrifice. Three different elements in the mitzvot, in the 613. And, but you can also find quite a few laws that, that vary in different categories. And I want to read these categories for you because I think that these, some of these, you'll be familiar with what the law, what, uh, these areas of laws. And I, I want to point out where we would hear these types of terms today. So you would hear laws in, in sea laws in the mitzvah, the 613, that had to deal with laws of God, laws of Torah, laws of signs and symbols and prayer, laws on how we should address the poor and the needy, laws on how we should care for our brother, laws about how we treat outsiders, laws on marriage, family, and divorce, laws on sex, laws on times and seasons, laws on what you can eat and not eat, laws on business practices, laws on how we treat our employees, laws on festivals, laws on courts and judicial procedures, property rights, criminal laws, crime and punishment laws, clothing laws, and taxation laws. Now, if, if you hear these terms, there are probably some familiar terms in those. Where might you have heard some of those terms before? Government. You would hear those terms in a government. It sounds exactly like government. And that's because it is. These are commands that are meant to govern a nation, to set apart a holy nation. This is a theocracy. God is directly ruling a group of people. He's directly ruling a group of people. Why? Because we're fools. <laughs> he needs to intervene to protect them. There are nations falling left and right, coming and rising at this time. God needs to put some boundaries, some ways to protect his people. We look at the dietary laws and we think, well, those seem silly, like shrimp and, and, and shellfish and pork. God put those things in there because people were dying in hordes from eating those things. He needs to preserve his people because he's got a plan. He needs to give the Messiah here. And so these are rules of governing a nation but they're also laws that show the holiness, the glory, and the might of our God. These are the standard of God. The standard of God commands that we are to follow indeed, but also by heart. They come out of love for what God, faith of what God 
has done for us. So here's the thing. 613. Like I just said, we couldn't even follow one. How are we going to do 613? Just not. This never was the intent. You were set up for failure. You cannot obey that on your own strength. And God knows it. And that's why he gives it. You cannot rely on your own strength. The law has a much bigger purpose than just to govern a group of people and to show them the standard of God. Listen to what Paul writes here in Galatians 3. Lots of scripture today. Why then was the law given at all? Great question, Paul. It was added because of transgressions until the seed, that's Christ, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator, that's Moses. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So even though Moses gave these rules, it's God that gave them to Moses. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Faith by righteousness? Absolutely not. If the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. Faith credited righteousness through faith. The Israelites were sinners, just like every nation, every culture at that time or any other time. And so the law was there to convict them of their sin, to restrain them and govern them from committing that sin. Why? Why? Paul says, until the seed to whom was promised would come, Christ. The promise of justification through faith was was promised to Abraham and is now fully fulfilled in Christ. And we as believers are heirs to that promise, righteousness by faith. I love that the law talks about uh, the, the law, or the, the, the word talks about the law being like a guardian. Essentially what it's saying, it's like a schoolmaster. A schoolmaster that's trying to kind of keep us in line until Christ comes. Trying to keep us from getting way too all, far off the path until Christ comes. You know, I think the interesting thing about the law in the Old Testament is that do you understand the disciples and the early apostles would have used it to testify about Christ? That was their mode of evangelism. They would use the Old Testament and the law to tell people about Christ because they didn't have the New Testament. 
And so the law points forward to Christ. We are held under its scrutiny, under its terror and discipline as a prisoner in a state of confinement so that when Christ comes, we are readily free to accept that awesome free gift of grace that we would understand and see the beauty of the freedom that comes in grace by faith in Christ. And so these aren't just a list of rules that make it for us to do well or for our lives to go well, which certainly if you did follow the 613, things would be pretty good. Things would go well for you. But listen, God has no illusions about your capacity to be able to do that. He knows that Steve Serval is a fool. I can't even keep one rule. He knows the corruptness and the brokenness. This was never about a list of rules. It would never be about a list of rules to create wholeness and bring self-improvement and salvation into our life. That's the unique thing about Christianity. You see, in every other religion of the world, people assume that you are basically okay. In every other religion of the world, people say that you're basically okay. You just need some rules. Hey, you need some perspective. You need some instruction in your life. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they just say you need more instruction. That you can live fine after that. Christianity is the only religion in the world that says you are spiritually dead by nature. You are alienated from God. There is enmity between you and God. That he is your creator, but he is your enemy because of your sin. He can't be around it. And this explains why our world is a hot mess and broken. But this isn't a hopeless religion at all. It's not. It's a hopeful religion because of Christ. You see, Israel's history is about God's approval and disapproval that's supposed to be transparent for us to see. We're supposed to see the written law interacting with the brokenness of hearts. It's supposed to be obvious to us because of Israel that faithfulness is being rewarded by prosperity and flourishing. That idolatry is being punished by famine, defeat, and ultimately exile. It's a public display for us to see in the Old Testament. The written word against a broken heart. If you want to see this more in context, read Deuteronomy 26 through 30. It is different now. There is no individual, no political nation like Israel anymore. There is not a sect of people that God is governing where he discerns directly over people. What did Paul say in that? There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, no woman or man. All are one in Christ. Like Israel is a unique scenario. It's a preparation for the Messiah, where God's law was was explicitly kind of being developed as righteous and, and, and holy. He was especially showing his character of, of, of holiness, God, in the area, uh, in the people of Jerusalem. But that wasn't the end game. It wasn't the end game. The end game was to redeem the world. If we think of creation, good deal. I want that. One rule. No oppression by the law. Just completely fulfilled in Christ. We messed it up. God has been working to redeem it. Was his plan ever to suppress his people by a list of rules? No. He wants to take us back to that freedom. What does eternity look like? Much like the garden. The aim is to bring us freedom. 
But we have to know what's broken inside of us for us to ever have that freedom, to understand that freedom, to understand the gift of grace and the freedom that comes in Christ. That is the nature of the law. That's the nature of the law. It's not about your obedience to it. Because the heart of the problem isn't your inability to follow rules and commands. That's not the issue. It's not your issue with obedience. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We talk about this all the time. That heart, that inner center of morality and emotion that's busted and broken. Since the beginning of time, since the fall of man, it's broken. You can't fix yourself through self-improvement. You can't fix yourself through effort. You can't fix yourself through wisdom. You need a new heart. You need a heart transplant. You need to get behind the action, behind the thought to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem isn't disobedience. Disobedience is the fruit of a root problem. Your heart. You can't fix it through effort. That was the mistake of the Jews. They tried to make legalism around this. They took these 613 it became a competition. Who can follow it closer? I'm more holy because I followed 597 and you didn't. I know more about the law. That wasn't why the law was given, so we can look good. The law was given so God can look good. Not for us. The problems are heart. These Jews measured themselves on obedience, but none of that matters to God. The Apostle Paul, the writer of this text, says that my obedience, and it was a great obedience, Paul is, is of great esteem as a Jew. He says, my obedience to the law was as filthy rags to the suppressing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Filthy, comparing to knowing Jesus Christ. Christ came to deal with what's behind your disobedience, our broken heart, our broken selves, the selves that the law illuminates, that we know where sin abounds. Christ came to fix and to deal with that. The prophet Ezekiel speaks about the coming one this way. This is what he says in Ezekiel 11, about the one who is promised to the Jews, the Messiah. He says, and I will give them one heart, a new spirit, and I will put within them I will, as a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the, the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh as a heart transplant, that they may walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their, det- their detestable things and their abomination, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads. I will give them over to their hearts declares the Lord. I will, I will let them have that. It just means it's separate from me. I will give them over to those things. Ezekiel writes this five to six hundred years before Christ is born. He writes this five to six hundred years before Christ is born, that God wants to get to the core of the issue, the human hearts, and he needs to have the law in place to leverage the law for people to understand their ineptness and their brokenness. Christ is going to come, he's going to die on the cross, he's going to be raised again, so that now God's Spirit can live in the heart and the spirit of those who believe in him. That God dwells with his people internally. That didn't happen in the time of Israel. God dwelled in the holiest of holies inside the temple. What Christ has done is he has separated the means of salvation and governance. 
You, salvation is through Christ. God doesn't need a rule over his people like Israel. The Bible says that you are strangers, sojourners in this world. Was God's aim to establish a government on earth where people would come inside of that? No. His aim was to redeem the world, and he knew he had to get to the heart to do it because we can't follow laws. He wants to write those written rules on our hearts through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. That was his aim from the beginning, to change us from the inside out. Following rules and commands goes from external to internal. But when you start with the heart, it transforms all that flows out of it. It's beautiful. And so is the law good? Yes, it's good. It is absolutely good. All 613. It's good because God gave it to us. It's holy. God used it to preserve a nation amongst a broken world. To show us his holiness and to bring us knowledge of our incapacity. The law is good. It just can't save us. Can it create blessing? Yeah, it can. It can, but not salvation. Now, are we to follow the law? It's a big question. Are we to follow the law? You might want to say no. But the answer is yes. All of it. Wait, Steve. I thought we were getting someplace cool. You're going back to the 613. I got to obey all of those things. Thanks be to Christ who in Matthew 5 says he came to fulfill the law. He fulfills the law. And by his scandalous grace, imputes to us his righteousness, his perfection in that law. And he's going to go on to sum up those commandments in one word, love. And he's going to root it in our hearts. He changes the ballgame. It's a new covenant with his people. And that grace is not without effect. Because grace is a greater motivator than the law could ever be. Grace is scandalous. Scandalous. So that's where we want to head next week. We want to build on this discussion of the gospel and the law. We come, come to understand what grace is really about. How faith has set us apart from the law. How Christ fulfilled those requirements. How he summed them up in that one word, love. And ultimately, where he believes obedience has to start from. And so let's keep building on our right thinking about God and the gospel and the law to have articulated conversations down the line. A lot of theology coming out here in the beginning. We're going to get you application here in the next few weeks. But these are important that we have understanding. I fear. I fear and it motivates me that we might be ill-equipped to understand how our culture might perverse the gospel. And that because we're not equipped, that we would go down roads that we never intended to go. And so we will teach faithfully the text of God so that you might understand who God is fully, that you can pick out the lies and discern the deceit that is in the world. It comes through understanding who God is and what he wants for us. It starts with the gospel and the law. So we want to build on that next week. Two questions for you this week as you leave to consider. Why did God give the law? Talk about that with your family. Talk about that with your friends. Sounds like great conversation around the dinner table, right? Hey, guys, why did God give the law? Good conversation. Do you know in the Shema, the Shama, in Deuteronomy 6, uh, 
it's, it's a holy prayer to the Jewish people. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord our God is one. Uh, bless the Lord and his kingdom forever. Love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. Write these things on your doorsteps. Speak about them when you lie down. There is an obligation that we have to the people in our lives to speak constantly and to remember the decrees of God and who he is. And so conversations like why did God give the law may seem like, yeah, it's silly. But it's important to understand, not just for us, but for our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors. And then the second question is, why is it impossible to have right standing in front of God by rule following? A couple of topics for you to discuss. Okay. We're going to hang around Galatians 2 and 3 for the next week or so. You're going to turn the page into some application. Next week, we're going to battle through faith versus works. I think it's going to be a great conversation. I'd love for you guys to join us. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, come to you with, with humble hearts, Lord, just to say thank you for the way that you've worked in history, the means and the devotion that you've had to us to bring us back into relationship with you. I don't know why you picked the way that you did, Lord, through this vessel of the Jewish people and into the world, but you did, and it's glorious. And so, God, we thank you for the law. We thank you for the way that it shows our ineptness. It abounds sin that we come to understand your standard, Lord. And, God, we thank you for Jesus, who who fulfills it, who gives us grace by faith in him. Lord, convict us in the areas that we fall short of. Convict us in the areas of adding to the gospel, taking away from the gospel, perversing your gospel. Lord, help us to have a passionate heart towards what has saved us. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We love you, Lord. Pray this in your son Jesus' amazing name. Amen.